Andra mojennepe musa polutropun hos malapolla plankta epi drujas hirump tulietronepersi. Pollon dantropon viden vastea kai nunegna. Polla togen puntoi patsen algea on katatymun. Arnymenos hän tepsyykän, kai nostun he taeraan. Aluthos hetarus herryssato hiemenusper. Autun kars hetäräisinä tastaliäisin uluntu. Welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. What you just heard there was the uh, introduction to the Odyssey and the uh, by Homer, or we're not quite sure uh, if Homer even existed, but we're guessing that uh, it, uh, it is attributed at least to Homer. Um, and uh, I have a bit of a treat for you today. Uh, today I have uh, with me uh, Dr. Enos, Dr. Richard Leo Enos, uh, who uh, I had the privilege of uh, taking a course in classical rhetoric with at Texas Christian University. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Enos. Rich. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very much. And he is, just to give a little bit of an introduction to him, uh, he has a list of publications and accomplishment about as long as my arm, uh, but uh, he has been, uh, he was the... Um, he is currently an emeritus professor and quondam, uh, hold, quondam holder of the Lillian B. Radford uh, Chair of Rhetoric and Composition, right? At the he was uh, at the Department of English at Texas Christian University. Um, he past faculty member also of the Classical Studies program there. Um, he also was a professor of rhetoric at the English department um, and uh, has also been teaching at uh, the. Uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, he has uh, been uh, uh, working with the or working for the American School of Classical Studies at Athens uh, under the auspices of the Greek Ministry of Science and Culture. Uh, he also has received a lot of rewards: the uh, Carl R. Wallace reward, Award for Research in Classical Rhetoric, uh, the Richard E. Young Award for the Best Article in Rhetoric Review. And he's also a co-founder of the uh, Advances in the History of Rhetoric um, and uh, was uh, nominated and awarded the um, uh, George E. Hughes Distinguished Service Award by the Rhetoric Society of America and inducted as an RSA Fellow. Um, he is uh, passionate about rhetoric and about teaching. And uh, I... I had the experience when I came to graduate school or came to the PhD program at uh, TCU. Um, obviously, as all students, um, and they wonder often if they've come to the right place. And it was when I took the first couple of courses with him in uh, classical rhetoric, first couple of classes with him in classical rhetoric, that I felt I'm at the right place. <laughs> this is where I want to be. This is what I want to learn. Um, he has a love of rhetoric that is infectious. Um, and uh, I would uh, classify him as uh, the good man speaking well, <laughs> which is the highest uh, highest distinguished distinguishment of uh, rhetoricians in the from the classical uh, classical world. So uh, that's uh, 
without further ado, I give you Richard, Leo, and Enos. <laughs> well, David, thank you for this wonderful um, opportunity and the wonderful introduction that you gave. I appreciate it very much. I'm so glad you picked that selection from the Odyssey to start because one of the things that I hope to do today is to provide our listeners with a, an introduction to classical rhetoric, to its origins, its development, and uh, in this session, how it began to be considered as a discipline. I suppose the most helpful thing I can do is to start off by giving at least uh, a definition of what rhetoric itself is, and then to move into more of the particulars. Well, rhetoric is usually considered to be the study of the relationship between how we think and how we express those thoughts and our sentiments um, in social contexts. We feel that it's absolutely important for the study of not only literacy, but to refine how people can best express themselves to understand this and to, and to benefit really from the historical contributions of that. And now so, you might think sorry. that yeah. you know that the rhetoric began as uh, a discipline in the early decades of the fifth uh, century BC classical world of ancient Greece, and especially in Athens. And the normal uh, lore is that. Um, two rhetoricians from Sicily, one from Syracuse, um, Tisius, who had studied under Corax, and another rhetorician from a smaller city north of Syracuse, Leontini, Gorgias, or Gorgias, depending upon how you want to pronounce his name, mm-hmm. went to Athens to mediate a dispute that was in accordance with the treaty, and in the process of doing that, introduced the study of rhetoric that they had helped to refine and develop in Syracuse. And the, the, so the, the background in, in Syracuse was that there was this tyrant, right, that had, uh, if I understand correctly, that had taken a lot of property, a lot of land, and then at the fall of the tyrant, they had to, there were disputes about property rights, right? And uh, the uh, the teacher, or, or Quirix and Tisius are, are are known as being uh, became famous during that time because their students or the ones they counseled would usually win out in those in those uh, or win, or win when it wasn't likely that they would win in those uh, disputes. Is that right? That's exactly right. What had happened is that maybe as early as the 800s BC, Greek cities had gone west to areas such as Sicily to colonize, and they had brought, of course, their culture with them. And most Greek cities were not run by a democracy, but rather by absolute rulers. And so the word tyrant comes from this. Mm. Uh, Some were were, uh, responsible and uh, benevolent. Others were not. And Syracuse, as you said, overthrew a tyrant who was not. And many disputes came about like land ownership property. 
And, and those became part of the civic function. And so thinkers such as Corax developed techniques that could persuade other people of the cause. And they began to be systematic. In fact, the, this Greek word techni means the study of an art. And they considered that as an art. A somewhat systematic art. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, our quest is to say, what are the forces that led up to that creation? So, if you will, it's, it's a, a kind of prehistory. What is the development that led up to this? Because, of course, people were trying to express their thoughts and ideas well before rhetoric became a discipline. Right. And so we're trying to look at that. So the, the prehistory of rhetoric and the kind of the the, the birthplace and the um, the uh, historical setting in which this this art uh, art art form and this uh, uh, pedagogy gets uh, conceived. Right, and that's the first part of our discussion today. And then the second part is to do just a quick review of some of the most important contributions that have come about by scholars who have looked at such things, and especially the scholars who have done that over about the last 100 years. Yeah, and there's been a lot of development. It's tremendous. It's hard to imagine that something that happened so many years ago could take such a quantum leap in understanding only within uh, two or three generations of our our research. I think this is why uh, it's the most exciting time to study this discipline. Plus, archaeological developments have unearthed incredibly important material evidence that really confirms or denies, elaborates, extends our knowledge that we didn't have before, that we didn't have 100 years ago. Mm. It's very hard for people to imagine that the agora or the marketplace of Athens that we can go and visit now today, all of us as tourists, uh, was in such a condition that we weren't even sure exactly where around the Acropolis the Agora was a little more than about 100 years ago. So there has been an enormous development, and I hope to talk about that and, uh, as we move on later. In some ways, the, uh, the past is returning. It is, and it's uh, and it's all anew. I mean, that's the great part. Some of the oldest parts are now some of the newest parts. One of the things that I wanted to mention was I'm why I'm so glad you picked that passage of the Odyssey, is because it is one of our one of our primary sources to look at in the prehistory of this discipline of rhetoric. Uh, One of the things that's important for people to understand in just a nutshell is, as with every society, ancient Greece started out as, as as an oral society. In other words, there have been many societies, as Walter Ong has said in his book, Orality and Literacy, that have come and gone that we never knew about because they were purely oral. Right, there's just no, no written history left by them. There's no record. Mm-hmm. There's or, no evidence that we can look at 
or there is writing like the Etruscans, but we can't decipher it yet. And, and this is something that we're just starting to do. Uh, I felt very proud last week, David, because I was for the first time in my life actually able to read the genitive case in Etruscan, which I hadn't <laughs> been able to. So, I'm t- so they're really, for me, it's just small baby steps, but we're learning. This is, this is just, uh, and you need to tell for the listeners, but that's, that's uh, his side project is deciphering the Etruscan language. And I'm working on that in, in all humility because I realize it's enormously complex. And if I can make any minor contribution towards the decipherment, I will be incredibly elated. <laughs> um, but, I, what, but so the question for historians says, well, if this, these oral societies existed, but we don't have any record uh, or, I mean, evidence from them, how can we learn anything? Right. Well, just as we listen to the Iliad and the Odyssey, we can see two things. That work itself, itself, is a written is a written record of oral compositions. So they're writing about the orality. Also, within the document itself, if you analyze it, you can get clues. Because one of the things that people, that shocks people when they first start is that many, many uh, individuals in antiquity never learned how to read silently. This sounds so odd to us because all of us think now that it's natural. Right. It's only natural because we practiced it. But if you recall what your parents did when, they started to have you read, you read aloud, and they asked you to read quietly, and with great effort, you could read silently. But the point is that, and we know that this is the case, because the instances where people could read silently were so rare that they were noted. Remarked upon, yeah. It was like, yeah, this, this person fact, knows this how to read, read uh, rare, yeah, or read uh, yes. uh, silently. Yeah, in fact, uh, St. Augustine in his Confessions, and this goes way late. We're talking about way... 300, right? Yes, at the end of the 300s into the 400s, Augustine writes in his Confessions that when he went to study rhetoric in Milan with Ambrose, St. Ambrose, he wrote he couldn't get over, he, Augustine said he couldn't get over that Ambrose could read the words without saying them out loud. It was amazing to him. And but my point, you know, my point is we have this oral history that we can find some things out right. and learn. And uh, so I, I got this uh, in the course, just this wonderful overview, where uh, really in ancient cultures uh, you had writing among the, uh, you know, the Egyptians, you had a form of, hieroglyphs yes. but it wasn't it wasn't uh, based on an alphabet in the same way um, you had among the um, uh, what's it called again the uh, not the sem but the uh, uh, the old population of Mesopotamia what's that called again the uh, the Sumerians the Sumerians that's right uh, but it was a different form of writing and it was a very difficult uh, method to, to learn and so it was uh, it was something that belonged to the elite in society primarily, right? Uh, most of the society was still oral, 
but they had some people who could write in that society, a kind of elite, a learned elite. Yes. In, in fact, writing became a craft profession. It was because the technology of writing in those disciplines that didn't have an alphabet was so complex that you had to devote a considerable amount of time. Now, for our society, and this shows the impact of the alphabet, we could teach this to children. Right. Yeah, children memorize it. They could, we would say, say your alphabet, and they could do it without a problem. So the beauty of the alphabet is that it enables a kind of a mass literacy to be possible without great effort. And fortunately, uh, one of the cities of antiquity that could have a mass reading public was Athens. Mm. But Rome before, was another one later. And, but be, be, and before that time, though, you had uh, you did have a lot of compositions. You had uh, you know uh, you had stories of heroes. You had uh, the as as we've found out, the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, were composed almost like entirely uh, orally, just by people memorizing it. Exactly. Uh, we th think also a lot of the, the Genesis also has those same, the, uh, the first part of Genesis with the creation has those same patterns, right, of oral composition, where just you would just say it and say it and people repeat it and people, you would repeat it to others and they would remember it and they would re repeat it on to others, right, for hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years and thousands of years. And in fact, uh, this quality is so important because we can understand things this way. Um, and these are in very general terms, ancient Greece started, as I mentioned, in, as an oral society. Now, writing was introduced in the terms of a syllabary, where you don't have the characters of an alphabet, which normally run, well, in Greece's case, roughly 24 letters until it's, when it's finally stabilized. So a syllabary can run maybe 90 to 120 characters. Right. But it's not as precise to express ideas. And this faded away. It died out, right? It died out, and Greece returned to an oral tradition until the alphabet was reintroduced, maybe as early as 800 in BC. So what we're reading in the Iliad and the Odyssey, to put all of this together, is an account of what Greece was like when it was an oral culture. And it was written down because, as you said, there were many Homeric tales, and they wanted to stabilize all of these. So under the emperor Pisistratus in, uh, in this 6th century BC, they were able to gather together rhapsodes and to formulate this story. But if you read every book, it's about one night's tale. It's maybe 800 to 900 lines. It's a story of an adventure and it's cyclical so that one thing happens and then it runs its circle and comes around and then it goes to the next. And the technology for doing that, when it was oral, before it was inscribed, was uh, 
was rhythm and meter as an aid to do this. And that kept the form. So and the form of the Iliad and the Odyssey is dactylic hexameter. Right. And if you look at your index finger, you'll see that it's a dactyl, it's a finger, and it has a long, and then if you look at it from left to right, it has a long and two shorts and joints. And mm-hmm. so that is a dactylic hexameter, and it was used to write, but also earlier to speak, the Iliad and the Odyssey as an aid to memory. And then you had these bards that were essentially like a guild that would learn this by heart and travel around from city to city and recite the entire Iliad or the entire Odyssey, right? Or at least uh, large portions of it. Yes, and we begin to get insights into the relationship between memory and creativity that and, we didn't have before. And And a lot of people, when they kind of discovered that actually... Uh, there's no way that uh, the that the time that the Iliad and the Odyssey were um, first composed that they they could have been written down. They must have been written down much later, and that they were primarily oral compositions. Uh, a lot of classicists wouldn't believe it, right? Because this is like these are great works of world uh, literature, some of the greatest of world literature, and there's no way that they've often seen oral compositions as these inferior texts, right? Right. In other words, that to scholars of less than even a hundred years ago, the idea of having oral literature didn't make any sense because it wasn't literature until it was inscribed. And so they resisted the idea that the Iliad in the Odyssey had an oral predecessor, that it was purely these folk tales they because they considered homer the greatest of all poets in the in the iliad and the odyssey the greatest of all poetry and the kind of the say grandfather of western literature western civilization in some ways right and and you know in this in these tales we hear about of course the trojan war and remember it was only within the last hundred years or so that Sleeman began to excavate and and to verify, based upon the Iliad and the Odyssey, that these oral traditions were true, that there actually was a Troy, and that there was a battle. Right. And this and this opened up not only obviously the field of archaeology, but just the whole idea of how we should readdress all these early ideas and works and myths and cultures and the traditions that they passed on um, than we had just taken for granted before. So this is one of the reasons why it's so exciting to, to study these classical works. And so you really tap into, you know, you get rhetoric um, coming like really of age in a more literate culture, uh, but already the the basis for it being there with you know the aids to memorization those those kind of things, um, really with deep roots in in an oral history. Yes, the and the other thing I wanted to mention, and this is something that's also odd for us to think about, 
is the importance of the alphabet as a technology. And here's the analogy that I like to use. If we were to say that ancient Greeks did their mathematics with their alphabet, uh, because, in other words, um, the letter alpha meant one and beta mm-hmm. meant right. two. The technology is cumbersome. You could do the mathematical computations and accidentally spell a word. Right. And then it confuses the readers. So ancient Greeks, with the exception of geometry, which they kept, dumped that system of mathematics as being used by their alphabet and adapted the Arabic system. And mathematics in Greece took, with no pun intended, a quantum leap (laughs) in, uh, in sophistication. And when I tell students this, I say, and for example, if you want to see the contrast, ancient Romans, who did not use the Greek system, but kept their Latin system and still used letters. So we see letters at the start of movies where I'll say M-D-C-V-I-I. They kept their letters for their mathematical system. And then I asked the students, please name for me all the great Roman mathematicians. And of course, they don't come up with any. But my point is not that they weren't smart, intelligent, but that the technology didn't make it easy for them to express their thoughts and sentiments. Mm. Now, the alphabet did make it easy for people to express their thoughts and sentiments in literate ways. Right. And in ways that helped civic operations. For example, how to express what is the best thing to do in politics. What is the best thing to do in law? What is the best thing to do in times of crisis where we need um, sort of moral reassurgence of values or condemnation of others, which we call epideictic Mm -hmm. rhetoric. So for civic functions, the alphabet helped facilitate the oral qualities of rhetoric and, and eventually transformed into a literate rhetoric. And, uh, but there's, uh, as uh, <clears throat> Plato points out in the Phaedrus, there, there's a payoff too, right? That uh, with the advancement into a literate society, you gain some things, but you also lose some things, right? So yes, you have... he, he was very critical of this because the literate functions... And this they inherited also from the pre-Socratics was based upon the idea that they had to, the source of validity was the audience, the people. Mm -hmm. Just like in a law court, we would have a jury and we have to argue what is reasonable to normal, rational people. Well, they developed, they, the sophists, the rhetoricians developed the idea of probability they refined it because they said, well, we can't know for certain, but we can say it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And that's the basis of our law system today, right? Right. And that's, and so it's a standard of judgment. Well, of course, Plato felt that we shouldn't spend our time thinking what might or might not, but we should try to quest after certainty. His opponents thought that certainty was an impossible goal. Right. 
but he and his teacher Socrates believed that it was the only real goal. And that is what philosophy should be, and anything that wasn't that was less than philosophy. And so in his dialogues, he denigrated rhetoric for the very reason that rhetoric was so effective in that it could make strong cases about probability and likelihood. And that is where these great debates come about. Of course, the only reason why we have Plato's words today is because of writing, right? <laughs> yes, you know, and Plato believed that the best way to express his ideas was to mimic the conversational style of a dialogue. So he is, if, if you ask classicists, they'll say that Plato was one of the great stylists of antiquity because of his tremendous capacity in writing. Right. But when you read his writing, he did it in a way that sounds like we're doing what you and I are doing right now, having a conversation, conversation. but it really isn't a conversation. His isn't. It's a written um, genre that he uh, popularized. With the appropriate you know, foils and the building up to right. a climax and the use of metaphors and, uh, you know, allegories and so on. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I often, I, I, I thought, you know, like if Plato at that moment had had the technology that we have where he could have had a recorder or play or just turned on, you know, maybe things would have been different, but the best technology he had to preserve the wisdom, knowing that the oral contributions of his mentor Socrates would be lost was to preserve them through writing. And uh, as uh, Cicero said, uh, I never saw Plato rise to the greater heights of rhetoric than when he was denigrating rhetoric. <laughs> yes, Cicero said that in his monumental work, De Oratory, where he was, he said exactly that, that in the process of condemning rhetoric, that Plato proved he may have been the best rhetorician of them all. So <laughs> it was a nice quip. But it got, uh, in fact, one of the reasons, I mean, in seriousness, if we look at it, is nowadays we say things that we wouldn't have said 100 years ago, such as there is a rhetoric of science. Right. There, scientists argue with each other. They make cases. Of probability. Probability. They have to gain the agreement of their colleagues. They talk they about submit. explanatory power that a certain yes. theory has. And, and that is, as Aristotle would later say, a special kind of rhetoric, rhetoric specific to their discipline. We could say philosophers, act as Henry W. Johnstone Jr., who is a wonderful philosopher, uh, argued that when philosophers engage in debate, they also engage in a rhetorical activity. Right. So we can see that the that the issues that came out of antiquity actually resulted in some very powerful insights to disciplines that we at one time thought would have nothing to do with rhetoric, but now we see that rhetoric is at the core of their activity. And uh, so going back to the uh, oral versus literal part, right? Uh, there's, uh, in Phaedrus, he has this, uh, he has this uh, mythical story of the one who first invi invents writing, right? And he says, "I've uh, I've uh, 
I've got an aid to I've invented something that's uh, an uh, aid to um what is it, an aid to memory is it or aid to aid to knowledge yeah. right aid to knowledge yeah. here the, the uh, Egyptian god Toth yeah it normally spelled the way we spell it would be something like T H O T H right was credited as the god who invented writing and generally this uh, Egyptian god of intellectual insight. Uh, but, <clears throat> of course, in the Phaedrus, when, when Plato is setting up his argument, the idea is that you lose the dynamics of interaction in a social oral dialogue For he says, uh, if I can just uh, quote the King Themis here, what uh, he responds, right, is that for your invention will produce forgetfulness in the souls of those who have learned it through lack of practice at using their memory as through reliance on writing they are reminded from the outside by alien marks, not from within by themselves by themselves. And so you have discovered an elixir not of memory, but of reminding To your students, you give an appearance of wisdom, not the reality of it. Thanks to you, they will hear many things without being taught them and will appear to know much when for the most part they know nothing and they will be difficult to get, get along with because they have acquired appear the appearance of wisdom, not the reality of it. Right? The yes. kind of... Uh, yes, an excellent way to capture the point. If you, if you think about this in a more mundane example that I'm going to give, if you were to, you might look at a statue and you gain some insights, but then if you ask the statue a question, it can't the respond say anything. The statue just is there. And this is what Plato was saying is that you may learn something, but there's no dynamic to go beyond. You don't have an interaction. You don't get a response. And the, uh, the writing can't defend itself. Right? Yes. It's, it's just, and so uh, Plato believes that the best form of communication is the dynamics of oral interaction. One-on-one, -on -one, like we're doing now. Yes. You know, if he had learned that we had now mediated ways of trying to have that oral example. Sometimes we say to people, if we go to an athletic contest, whether it's a soccer game or something, we'll say, I wish I could describe it, but you had to be there right. to realize. You'd have to have been there. That yeah. insight of the Plato's going, our words have some limitations. We can do capture some things. The alphabet facilitates that as a heuristic, meaning as a way of building a, a, a method to do this. But experiential knowledge is different than than uh, just trying to express it indirectly. And I'm, I'm wondering if it also is expressing a certain um, loyalty or preference to the memorized knowledge because like they would, they would have these parts of information and for example, the Iliad, right? And they would memorize it and memorize it until it became part of them, right? Yes. And it's a very different experience from of being able to do that than just reading it. Yeah. Or, and I think that that's exactly the perspective that Plato was trying to. Like you've internalized it in a completely different way. It's become part of you. It is uh, a part of you. And you it, 
can. Uh, you don't have to have this crutch of a text to go back to. It's now inside you. It's it's part of you, and you've internalized it in a different way. Yes, and that memory can facilitate your creativity. And how can it do that? Well, because you know certain things that you wouldn't have to look up or had were ignorant of, you can begin to make connections and associations, whether they coexist or causal, that you didn't have before. Mm. And so memory is not distinct from creativity or invention, but rather it's a very important part of it to understand associations and connections. And this even goes back to Locke. Locke's idea of associationism is you make these links. Mm. So uh, we, and we can see the power of memory. I used to tell students, if you have a big exam, often uh, you make sort of beginning efforts to memorize massive amounts of material by getting shorthand techniques. And then uh, they'll often say, well, two days after the exam, I didn't remember anything. And I said, well, that's not really true. I mean, if you went back and you reviewed, all of this would come back. Mm. But it shows the power of memory. It's just that our technology doesn't make it necessary to have to do that. We've written it down. We've recorded it. But like you said earlier, something is lost while something is gained. Right. So, and if but to just go a little bit, uh, I, I love this so much, but into Walter Ong where he talks about this defines, comes to define society. Uh, yes. That in uh, that oral societies, nothing exists unless it is memorized, unless you remember it. Yes. And, and just like Ong used to say, when people make a contract in the old days, they would shake hands and they would say, my word is my bond. I'm going to keep this because that's the kind of person I am. Rather than a, a written contract that has to have these right. old subclauses and clauses and stuff like that. Yes, and the written contract is not inside you. It's on the table, and both parties stare at it, and they sign it. But I know that if I say to you, David, uh, will you agree to do this? And you say yes, then it's going to be done. Mm. It's going because that's the kind of person you are. You make your promise, you're going to keep your promise. And uh, that's the point Ong was trying to get at, is that in an oral society, there, as you said, it becomes a part of you. It's a part of who you are. And the contract is this impersonal, the written contract is this impersonal static entity right. that is on file in the court hall down in City Hall. And we could look at it, but that's not the same as two people giving their word and shaking hands. And there are a couple of things, of course, that uh, he points out. And just to go briefly through a few of them that, you know, where there may be more controversial parts. But he says, for example, uh, oral societies are more conservative because the, there's a necessity for stable values. Uh, because otherwise, how do you... Uh, how do you bring it on to the next generation and how do things get remembered if they're changing all the time? Um, and he talks about the uh, that you have very often this kind of good versus evil because it's an easy, uncomplic- um, uncomplex, uh, uncomplicated uh, dynamic, the good and the evil, uh, clear contrasts rather than this kind of 
nuance that we like to talk so much about in art today, right? That's there's these complex characters, but they're not good or evil. Um, although you could say that in the Homer's Odyssey, you don't necessarily have these uh, stereotype good evil characters in the, in the same kind of way. Um, you also have a a view of history, or that is where this homeostatic that everything is always in the present. Uh, because you don't have these, so that you you don't have these uh, relics of writing that can kind of give you the perspective from another time period, unless that is also a part of the current society, right? Yes, and in fact, one of the newer areas of our discipline, I mean, in terms of just receiving attention, is called material rhetoric. So we would say, well, we don't want people to forget about this person or that event. So we're going to build a statue. Right. And we're going to have a statue. And yes, there'll be some recording at the base, but that statue is a visual material statement of a value that we think should be remembered and should be taught to future generations. Right. And so what we look at is that rhetoric appears not only in terms of words, but also symbolically in terms of buildings and uh, statues and other areas that, as I said, we call material rhetoric. Um, Professor Lamp uh, has written a wonderful book called The City of Marble, where she argues that during the uh, rule of Augustine, his claim that he changed Rome from a city of bricks and clay to marble was also a manifestation of rhetoric. Mm, right. Because he wanted to have his memorial, his uh, statement on the... Right. That would last. And I guess this, uh, especially in oral society, there was this uh, concern that you make sure that something gets kept, right? So you, you see, for example, in the... Um, uh, was in, in Exodus, right? It's uh, from the very beginning. It says like, so you need to do this every Easter, right? For the Jews. And then... When your children ask you why are we doing this, you will tell them this is why we're doing this, right? To in, in order to in, again for this uh, in this primarily oral society, for the history to be repeated and repeated, and that way to be recorded, not to disappear. Yes, and when families to this day, when families gather together at holidays, normally it will be one of the senior members, let's say a grandparent, who will tell the tales. And they will pass along these tales, and hopefully they will be remembered uh, in an oral know, in an oral way, right? It's not it's not in an oral uh, way. it's not primarily well, written that part. Yes, like for example, somebody will look at an old photograph of a family member and say, "Who is that?" And the grandparents say, "Oh, well, this is uncle or aunt, and this was when we had." our celebration when they came uh, from uh, Norway to, uh, you know, to the United States or when they came from Finland to do. And, and so they explain the pictures, right? They explain the, uh, the, the sort of visual imagery with words and affix a meaning to it. And so where that photograph, if no one knew, may have just been thrown away. Well, we don't know who this is. Now it's treasured. Right. Now it has, uh, now it has uh, a context. Value. Now it has value. Yeah, exactly. 
So the uh, uh, so to uh, that was a very good and long digression, obviously. But uh, with the uh, so the discovery that uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey were primarily oral compositions that was a that was a huge uh, eye opener. The last uh, just the last hundred years. Yes, and resisted by many scholars because they had been entrenched in the idea that there was a marked bright line distinguishing folk oral history with literature, which they... Uh, More elite, uh, yeah. Yes, and so this was a great challenge. Um, when Eric Havelock wrote his brilliant book, Preface to Plato, and talked about the capacity, among other things, to try to have abstract thought his argument was that it wasn't until the alphabet that this group had was able to systematically entertain the ideas of abstract thought that in an oral tradition is much more difficult to convey. And think, uh, this was strongly criticized initially, but over time, I always believe that good ideas went out and, his did. Do you think that the that means that um, it wasn't it that was true also for the ones who were literate in, for example, Egypt or so? Or do you think it was just that now suddenly so much of a larger group had access to these tools for abstract thought that suddenly it became a culture changing thing rather than just something that was uh, happened to a few people in the elite? I think it is. I think it's a social. <clears throat> pardon. I think it is a social phenomenon. I think it has cultural implications. Um, in my own country, the United States, uh, there were sadly some groups of people who resisted slaves learning how to read and write. Right. And and I think because they were aware that the power of reading and writing opens up education. We, we can see with children, for example, that the early years when they start is essentially oral. Right. But not too much after that, a lot of the access to some of the things they study is done through literate means. Like, you know, the study of history and reading and writing about it. And it opens up a world. It opens up a whole other world. I don't want to go too far into that, but, uh, you know, they're saying that in the uh, aftermath of the current election in the United States, they say the largest divide uh, is no longer actually a racial divide or other kinds of divides, not even necessarily income, uh, but education. Yes, um, I, and I, I agree with that. And uh, that, that's, that's just the, and that's not just here, but also in the U.K., uh, in the same way, it's the educated versus the or the those with a college degree and those without a college degree, uh, and uh, I'm wondering if that has to do again with this, that a lot of people that don't have a good experience in school remain very much in somewhat an oral society. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, with, I think with its values, and the others have much more of the kind of the literate society with its values. And I think another, I would just add. I mean, this is from my point of view. Mm -hmm. The other qualification is uh, also the resistance to be educated. 
In other words, there are some people who will say, I don't care what facts you present to me. I don't care what you say, what events, my mind is made up. Right. And so they have closed their mind to the possibility of another perspective. They have resisted doing this. And that means that no matter what I say or what you say or anyone else, to provide a kind of an educational perspective, it will be resisted. So it's not only, I think, the divide between education, but the divide in attitude about not wanting to take that other step. Do you think that, uh, but isn't that also very typical oral culture uh, in the sense that uh, you introduce a complexity here and it destroys the oral uh, system that needs to be, you know, very, very stable values, etc., and so on. Um, and people from oral, oral culture would uh, naturally be worried about that kind of introduction of those things leading to instability, meaning leading to things being forgotten, uh, leading again to a very mental disorganization. Yes, I think you, we can think of it this way. Suppose um, one of your relatives had passed away and you had a very clear perspective on who they were. And then someone comes up and, heaven forbid, says, well, your uncle is not the person that you think he was. Right, you resist and it, they, you resist it. And they, reduce, and they present these facts, which are clear. You know, maybe they have videotape, maybe they have whatever. Yes, you would resist it because to accept it means that the entire way that you have viewed him and maybe even that part of the world is now shaken and untrue. It's right. not accurate. And then the so question you, and the question is at that point, are you able to create a new balance in any kind of way or are you just thrown into disarray? Yeah, and that's and I think that there is initially and understandably a, a kind of confusion and disarray. My hope is is that people will say, you know, uh I I now have a better understanding that he wasn't a perfect person, that he had his faults as well as his virtues. And I do think about him differently, but now I feel that it's a better understanding of the whole person. Mm. Well, see, I think that, in my opinion, is a commendable value. But there are people who sadly will say, I don't even want to hear this. Or there is nothing you can say that will convince me otherwise than well, what I always Because you're from the anti-uncle party, right? <laughs> yeah. And then you <laughs> that, if, if you start seeing right. things as, as, as polarized like that, right? Uh, very clear contrasts, then, you know, you don't want something yeah. to weaken the side that you're, that you're on. Yeah. And, you know, when you, uh, when you look at early literature, there are often... Uh, you know, what we would call in the United States, the good guys and the bad guys. They're the ones who we say wear the white hats and the ones who wear the black hats. Right. And, and, uh, and, and then it makes life easy. And, and there's some truth to it, right? There is some truth to it. That's the thing. Like it, truth to it. There, there, it, it has some uses in society. These ones want to kill you. These ones want to protect you, you know? <laughs> right. It's a very, like one of the things that we see when we study propaganda and persuasion is is and this is sadly, but this is what I expose the 
students to with propaganda is it makes it very easy and clear about choices, not accurate, but choices. Right. Oh, these people are this way. Oh, we are this way. Or we, and everything is done in a very simple way. It's very so symmetrical, that, clear organization. Very clear. And it's very easy to understand. And it's consistent. And it's consistent, not accurate, but it's consistent. And that's the way that it's effective because it just makes it clear to understand, even if it's not accurate. Right. You know, uh, we just, it's just so like, in other words, I explained to students that in ancient Athens, there was a very, it was very difficult for them to think of some, somebody who was beautiful, but not also good. Somebody right, could be yeah. stunningly attractive and yet really a bad person. Alcibiades is one of these who was reputed to be one of the handsomest men in society. And he was an absolute scoundrel, but he kept being forgiven. Because so in ancient <laughs> Athens, as I tell students, somebody such as Quasimodo in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, who is probably the ugliest person in Paris, is also the most beautiful person in Paris. This would not have made any sense at all to classical Athenians. Mm. They, it wouldn't. It would have been very because difficult. Because the the good, the true, and the beauty, beautiful were. They just coexisted. Inseparable. Yeah. Yeah. They thought if you are beautiful, you must be good, and if you're not, then you're not. You know. So in our characterizations, evil people often look repulsive or ugly or monsters or whatever. But I also think like, I, I just remember, I just remember even something as simple as learning language, right? Uh, when I grew up, I learned that uh, verb subject and uh, uh, preposition or not, not preposition, but uh, yeah, direct object, for example, those were stable categories and as I went to university, I learned that they were functions and they were more useful than true as categories. Do you understand mm -hmm. what I mean? So, uh, but you don't expose kids for that. You don't, you don't start a whole debate with kids about whether this is more accurately described as a subject or a, or a direct object. Um, you just try to teach them the rules so that they can do something, right? And yes, and, to, and one of the things that, was recognized early in rhetoric, especially by Aristotle, is that rhetoric to be beneficial should help people to make good judgments. It should ultimately help them to try to winnow and sift fallacy from accuracy mm -hmm. and to recognize manipulation as opposed to a process that is fair and equitable to and so so it should and he says this several times in his rhetoric and he talks about the word crisis that in a crisis you make that you, you come together because you need to figure out what to do judgment mm -hmm. and rhetoric makes arguments and the goal is for the people who can resolve the problem to make good judgments so phronesis no not uh phronesis is right is yeah. judgment very early in Aristotle's rhetoric, the very first book about making um, making practical reasoning work toward the betterment of society through rhetoric. So you, what makes reasonable sense to any normal, this is why in most legal systems, the test of judgment 
is what is seen by, let's say you have a jury of 12 people, what is seen as reasonable and accurate to 12 normal, rational people. Right. So in the ideal sense, if you got those 12 people out after they made a judgment and you brought in another 12 people and they heard the same argument, get the same they judgment. make the same judgment. And so just the point that I was trying to make there though, a bit earlier, though, is that the the oral literacy world of stable categories, consistency, and so on, uh, to a certain extent, they're necessary for the organization of living, right? If you right don't, here, if I you mean, don't know who the criminals are, you don't know who to stay away from. If you don't know who the police are, you don't know who to ask ask for the way home. And then you learn that some criminals are good and some police are bad. But that's the exceptions. It's not. It's not the rule. You may get more nuanced pictures of it. Uh, but right. if you don't have, if and but if you don't have some stable categories uh, in society, you don't know how to orient yourself. Um, yes, and I think you know that's what like what the parents will say to every rule. Yes, there are exceptions. However, and as you said earlier, David, the idea is to try to understand the difference between appearance and reality, right? Somebody appears to be, sometimes when somebody tries to hoodwink you to get you to buy something or trick you, they give the appearance of being experts or credible or knowledgeable, but in actuality, or they have your best interests at heart, whatever it may be. But that's only the appearance. Right, just because um, I'm just trying to work through this myself in my mind here, but, you know, with YouTube, you have the, it appear it appeals massively to people with uh, primarily oral, um, that are primarily oral. It's the university of the uh, non-universities to people, uh, I would say, for, to a great extent. Uh, very appealing uh, to males, among other things. Um, and uh, a lot of people are getting their politics from YouTube these days, right? Well, I think we'll now the, see that as a source of knowledge, right. whether it's accurate or not. But with that comes a responsibility. Right, And but I, a, a lot of it is right-wing, you know. Uh, a lot of YouTube, the most viewed things on YouTube, are, <clears throat> are right-wing. And... Uh, <clears throat> I'm just wondering to what extent this, you know, with as far as stable categories and learning that stable categories can be questioned without try, without being viewed as trying to tear down the foundation, if it's just a question of of too brutal or uh, insufficient uh, initiation to that step without uh, will and perhaps not doing enough to make clear that. Look, these stable categories—they're still stable, but there's more, there's more, there's more, uh, there's more gray area here than you may be aware of before. If you increase your knowledge, you increase your pain, right? <laughs> but well, the, I think that you know, not only with with everyone—men, women, children—people see it as a source of knowledge. And a hundred years ago, as amazing as this may sound, maybe not even a hundred years ago, some people used to say, well, it must be right because it's printed in the book. I know that how, what that sounds like because we'd say, well, anybody could print anything. Well, I think in the same way, YouTube could be exploited to provide one perspective, but presented in a way that make it makes it seem like it is the perspective. Oh, because some Every. some of them are very stable categories. The uh, the like for example the the Trumpist ones. The meat is always lying. 
uh, you know, and that's the stable trope. And then let me show all these examples of the media lying or being, uh, you know, being uh, covering for the the left and attacking the right, etc. Uh, it's a it's it's, it's, it's a very it's a very stable world that then that you don't see a whole lot of counter examples to it, uh, but you do you do find those examples, and then that becomes kind of accepted reality. In in, in the yes in the rhetoric. Aristotle argued, and I think this sounds idealistic, but I, I do believe it's also accurate, is that he said that he believed truth has a natural superiority over falsehood. Right. Now, people could stop me right there and say, well, what is truth or your truth? And, but he believes that if we put those aside for just a minute, that what is actually the case um, will win out ultimately. You know, if that, as long as the they have adequate representation, that's a, that's yes, the quote, right? And that's why we have rhetoric is you have like, to have good people we, speaking we, well. Well, like if you think of the law courts, we compel a rhetorical situation where there are strong arguments on at least two sides. You can't just have have a court. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but you couldn't have a court case with just one side, right? You have to have the counterpoint and the obligation of that group is to make the strongest arguments against whatever it may be. Now, who knows? Maybe there even is yet a third perspective because if new evidence is introduced or discovered. Or multiple defendants or, yeah. Yeah, we have to account for that because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the decision is, and this is our word, just. Right. Just and the idea of true. justice, yeah. everybody in the same category gets treated the same way. So if we can prove beyond reasonable doubt that this person is a murderer, then he or she is put in the category of murderers, and we have a justice system for people in that category. Very good. I, uh, I think that's uh, that wraps up that part of that discussion. I think for for my part at least. Uh, but uh, so obviously we've gone a bit uh, off uh, off the different discoveries that you were talking about here. But I think that is a very key discovery here about the orality and literacy, um, yeah. and the the oral history of of memorization of uh, of persuasion. You could say. Yes, and what I would wanted to conclude with is just to give you, and I think even though we went a little bit off the topic, uh, I think ultimately though, it will give us a perspective on what I want to just mention for a couple of minutes right. of just some, a few of the many things that we have discovered about rhetoric and literacy in the ancient world in about the last 100 years. And I'll just mention them. And then if, in future, if people want any elaboration, mm-hmm. but some of them won't be I mean, clear from what like, just a, like I said, about. I'm, I'm fine going as long as you want to hear. I got this, uh, okay. for well, two, I, I got just, this I'll room for two hours. <laughs> I think this will, will help put a, a conclusion on our discussion today. But one is one we've already talked about is that Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey were actually oral compositions and his, if there was such a single person as Homer, some people believe that might have been a guild of rhapsodes who over centuries... Together kind of elaborated these things. Gathered, elaborated, created. Uh, that his elegant poetry was only a technology for memorization. 
that we use poetry to remind us, just like musicians would have verse that they can remember and sometimes don't even have to put a lot of thought into it. As long as it drops, uh, yeah. Yeah, we also mentioned that one of the things we discovered in the last hundred years, which helps us make a link between orality and literacy, is that with exceptions, Greeks and Romans never learned how to read silently. Um, another thing that we learned that I think uh, is odd for us a hundred years before, earlier, was that Sophists had a greater impact on literacy than either Plato or Aristotle, because their teachings, unlike Plato and Aristotle, were not presented to the select intellectual few, but rather their, in, their impact on how to express yourself and arguments of probability, which much was not only more persuade, pervasive, it went from the West to the East, but enduring, it went on for centuries and centuries. And we have a thing that we can talk about later called the second sophistic, which was so popular. That's something we didn't know about. And then uh, we also know that Greeks were literate before the alphabet. We mentioned linear A and linear B, which are syllabaries. And they didn't really invent the alphabet. They invented signs for uh, the vowels, which the Phoenician alphabet did not write down. And in fact, it's almost impossible to say a consonant without saying a vowel. So if you say D, mm. you can hear the E in it. If you say B, you can hear the E in it. Abecedaria. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. And we, we have uh, a, a new knowledge is that women in antiquity, uh, in, in some cases, were highly literate. Mm. And Greek women benefited from even co-ed higher education, co-educational higher education. There's inscriptions uh, from a city called Teos, which is on the border. It's an ancient Greek city in what is now uh, the coastline of modern Turkey. That shows that there were, now whether the women had mixed classes with men, I'm not sure about, but they did also offer advanced courses in literacy to women and also to men. So not as not as segregated in some ways as no, as, as we sometimes have image of yeah. yeah, because we would often hear, well, women in antiquity were non-literate, right? They just didn't. But that's not accurate. Uh, in fact, if you go to the British Museum today and you look at some of the vases, you'll see women holding scrolls. I mean, literally. Yes. You know, there we go. <laughs> uh, you know, we also learned that Spartans were experts in the practice of secret compositions. We used to say. Um, and people such as Isocrates prompted the idea that, he, in fact, he even said, this is Isocrates mm -hmm. in his Panathenaikos. And we're going to be talking about Isocrates the next time. But in respect to the arts, the Lacedaemonians, which is the other name for Spartans, mm -hmm. are even more backwards than barbarians. This is what <laughs> Isocrates says. And so inferior to our, he meant Athenian, shared paideia. This is a word that they meant in terms of uh, intellectual excellence. Mm -hmm. That's the term they had. Um, in antiquity, they thought if you were more educated, you actually became a better person. The more educated you were, the better you were. Right. 
And uh, the shared, he says, so inferior they, the Spartans, to us, the Athenians, that our shared paideia and philosophy, that they do not even teach themselves how to write. This is how barbaric. <laughs> well, that's not true. And right. we knew that Spartans did, but in their own way, not the way that Athenians said. We have a lot of work still to do. They're discovering the lost works of Aristotle. Uh, although there have been tremendous gains in deciphering Etruscan, there have been, there mm. have been, but really there is much more work to be done, much more. No one would say we now have this, even though there are over 13,000 inscriptions. And then um, some of the things I've been doing is trying to look at archaeological efforts to try and discover lost centers for the study of rhetoric and its performance. Mm. And I've been going back to sites that have been lost over time and trying to re essentially represent them or rediscover them. So we have a fuller understanding of the nature and pervasiveness of rhetoric in the ancient world. So that's a quick overview. That's very good. <laughs> and I hope that if we, in our next group, we can, we'll be able to, to now hone in on some of the earliest and most distinguished of the rhetoricians, especially Isocrates, and have an understanding of his contributions mm. about classical rhetoric. And so, just to give kind of an overview here now, right? So we have uh, we have these uh, this uh, Mediterranean area area that had all these uh, great civilizations of the past over you know thousands of years of history already in the uh, among the Egyptians. Um, and, uh, you know, but a very recent discovery of the alphabet or a re recent innovation of the technology of the alphabet where you distilled this very specialized craft that people took often a, a lifetime to master properly in the, in these elite societies of Egypt, for example. Uh, and now it was something that even little children could learn and did learn. Um, and yeah. massive systems of education, like in Athens, where you know they the they invested in or made very readily available um, the basic learning in in uh, in grammar, and after a while also in in rhetoric, right? Yes, and I think one of the exciting things that has happened is that we can now say this is our heritage in the West. That's true. But we've also said, well, were there rhetorics in other cultures? And if and if listeners are interested, I strongly recommend uh, a book that just came out, actually just a, a month or two ago, a few months ago, that's edited by uh, Keith Lloyd called The Rutledge Handbook of World and Comparative Rhetorics, mm. plural. And, they, and it exposes how exciting it is to see how rhetoric is created and manifested not only in the Western tradition and what we still need to know, but all throughout the world. And uh, could you go a little bit, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, give a, I could give a little bit of a kind of uh, preview of, so what's going to happen after this is that we, you do have a um, Athens becoming a center for the development of a pedagogy uh, of how to speak and write well. And uh, one of the masters of that tradition 
was Isocrates and became, uh, as I believe, was it Cicero that said, out of his school, um, they, uh, what, what's, what's the quote that the, the, these giants issued forth from his school um, as, uh, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what the metaphor was, but uh, he, he's seen as the father of giants in, in many ways, the intellectual father of many other giants of history writers, of politicians, of people that um, beneficially uh, affected Athenian society. Well, he did. And, um, and some scholars of the 20th century have recognized that Isocrates, have recognized Isocrates' contributions and called him the father of the humanities. Um, he developed a system in antiquity that was called by Professor Friedrich Salmson, the Ratio Isocratian, which is the whole curriculum came out of, of his educational practices. And if and this is an easy way to summarize what we'll be talking about. Uh, sometimes we think, for example, that learning the alphabet, learning how to read and write is a child's activity. And so by the third grade, as I've heard, you know, some people say, well, everything I know need to know about reading and writing I learned by the third grade. Well, Isocrates thought otherwise. He believed that it actually was a much more complex and sophisticated process. And part of his education for adults was to work on reading and writing, oral communication, deliberation, as a, as a complex, sophisticated activity that required advanced education, mm. and uh, uh, some of the things that uh, I I absolutely love, uh, Socrates, and uh, one thing that I love above, well, some of the things I really love about him is uh, how focused he was on his students or anyone that went to his school being able to benefit society afterwards. Uh, that yes, and, and that's where you, that quotation you mentioned was that the leaders, many of the leaders of Greece, came out of the school of Isocrates. And among other things, he believed in um, a pan-Hellenic view. In other words, not just isolated to Athens, Athens but to all of his world, which was for him the Greek world. And uh, that he has some absolutely, uh, I think, uh, sublime uh, pieces of text. Some people have just looked at his, uh, at, at the one that he won the award for at the, this uh, Greek, uh, this Olympic festivals for history, right? Or for uh, speech writing. Um, but, uh, and it is, it is also a great speech, but uh, one of my favorites is on the piece where he argues something as, counterintuitive as against the empire of the seas um, and for Athens to to not seek to be an empire but rather a leader to not be a tyrant but rather a leader of of nations uh, to lead in a way that is in accordance with justice with with harmony and uh, with the best interest for all in mind yes and there were occasions where I Socrates, was a representative for Athens at 
with among other things, conferences held by Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. And, and Isocrates went with a group of Athenians as a presbyter, as like we as an elder to represent and speak for um, his city, but in terms of larger frameworks. Right. So he was also an ambassador. I think. Uh, yeah. I think the more we learn about him, the the greater view in some ways we get of him. Uh, some people have seen him as just a teaching of teacher of style that was just kind of right. uh, kind of pedantic. Uh, whereas Aristotle introduces his rhetoric with saying, like, look, um, it would be shameful to be silent and let Isocrates speak because essentially that's what was happening in all of Athens was Isocrates was speaking. His school was having a huge influence, I believe. Yes, and I think his, and I think as you point out, his views were at the time controversial. And the fact that it's been really in the 20th century that we began to realize that Isocrates had made great contributions beyond just the normal way that they had been characterized for centuries. And so the appreciation for what he did, his educational vision, his innovative teaching are now just coming to light in the last, you know, once again, 100 years. And uh, so the, the, the time of history and what's going on here before Isocrates really is, you have Gorgias, you have uh, these other teachers, you have rhetoric, a lot of people kind of... Uh, doing speech writing, teaching speech writing, the sophists uh, somewhat, some have seen said that they were just, you know, mercenaries, they were writing speeches that people could write to defend themselves in the court because this was in the framework of a, of a democratic society. And Isocrates really comes in as the one, seems like the one who organizes this in a way, an education uh, system, and this is what Jeffrey Walker argue, argues for, that really takes the best of of everything. And he was also a student of Socrates, I believe, Isocrates was. Um, he, I know he was a student of Gorgias, and, and his education is wide, but what he was able to do, as you said, was to synthesize the benefits of these perspectives into uh, a method and procedure that was uh, very innovative. All right, so that will be a great uh, view for the next time. Um, well, thank you. Are there other things that, uh, anything else that you would like to conclude uh, the discussion uh, that we've had with today? I, I think that's, I think that I appreciate uh, what, what you've done. And I think we have set the perspective now so that when we look at thinkers on rhetoric, such as Socrates and Aristotle and others, we'll now have a context for understanding what they were um what what they were dealing with all right thank you so much for uh for uh being here on the podcast today let's say i'll just uh i'll just mute you now and we'll uh play the okay. uh, last part of the beginning of uh the odyssey Napier. Oi, catabus, hyperionus, aveliu, io vastion, autarotuisin apeileton ustimon aemar.
ton hamuten getea, tygater duus, hei pekaihe min.